0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, we've got editorials, regular columns, and a growing library, of course, of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people, In China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we are calling the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The China Initiative is something we've talked about quite a bit on this program. In a nutshell, it was a Department of Justice initiative launched in November of 2018 during the tenure of Jeff Sessions, who was, of course, Trump's first attorney general. Ostensibly, it was meant to target industrial espionage, theft of commercial IP, with a nexus to China, individuals who are some way connected to China. But the program came under fire uh, from many civil society groups, from administrators at research universities and institutes, from academics, from legal professionals, as well as from many others who were concerned with the FBI's overreach, and especially with racial or ethnic profiling. If you are interested in reviewing the basics of the China Initiative, I suggest you go back and listen to a show we put out in March, on March 21st, where I spoke to Margaret Lewis, Maggie Lewis, of Seton Hall University, a China-focused professor of law who's been at the forefront of the fight against this deeply problematic program. But I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of the cases of MIT professor Chen Gong, for example, or of Anming Hu the University of Texas Knoxville professor who was the first academic defendant charged in the China Initiative to actually have gone to trial. And we all saw how that went. The first trial ended in a mistrial, and when he was tried again, he was acquitted, and the prosecution's case was pilloried, including by the judge in the trial, for its reliance on false evidence, for warrantless seizures of documents, and more. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to be joined by two members of a three-person team of investigative reporters who published a scathing indictment of the China Initiative in the MIT Technology Review. They drew on DOJ's own published announcements on cases, on extensive court records, and on numerous interviews, including with individuals still involved in or formerly involved with the China Initiative. Eileen Guo, Jess Allo, and Karen Howe wrote the report. And though Karen is traveling currently in Latin America, and unable to join. I am very pleased to welcome the other two reporters, Eileen Guo and Jess Allo. Very warm welcome to both of you.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here.
0: Fantastic. Let's start with uh, about the genesis of the report. Um maybe you could tell me what it was that 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 made you decide that you needed to write this and needed to look into what was happening. What kicked it off for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I've been following some of the prosecutions and investigations that haven't turned into prosecutions for about three years now since 2019 when hmm. the NIH cases first came to light in, in Houston. So these were cancer researchers at MD Anderson that were being investigated um, and in a couple of cases terminated and a couple of cases resigned. And, and they were being accused of all sorts of things um, from you know sharing uh, research that was meant to be peer-reviewed with um, folks in China to not disclosing their their ties to China and as the years went on and these investigations went on and then they turned into criminal cases there was just such a lack of information that was being put mm. out by the Department of Justice and by the FBI and at the same time this growing fear about what exactly was happening um, lots of you know concerns as you've mentioned about racial profiling in particular. And so we wanted to take a look at this initiative and and look at it from a data-based perspective, which to Mm -hmm, date had not mm -hmm. yet been done. And we wanted also to do it by really looking at what the Department of Justice itself is saying about the China initiative. And, And that was something that we felt was pretty important because it seems at times like the two sides... Uh, People that are really interested and concerned about civil rights abuses, about overreach of and by the government, and on the other side, the Department of Justice, which is making these big announcements about about why they need the initiative, it seemed at times like they were kind of talking, they have been kind of talking past each other. And and so we wanted to really look at this initiative uh, using the Department of Justice's own words and claims.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so with these team investigative reports, there's always kind of a heist movie ensemble you have to put together. There's the safe cracker and the explosives expert and the getaway driver, the tech genius. What was the division of labor here? Jess, I, I think you were the data expert, right?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I kind of came in because I've had experience looking through DOJ and legal documents and trying to build you know, sort of comprehensive narratives. Um, and so I was the one who Went through every single statement the DOJ made and tried and tried to create a actual database, um, and that was where we started to see some of the nebulousness kind of really play out in mm. a really concrete way.
0: So Let's talk about what that data was that you looked at. So you talked about court cases and uh, statements, and there were also the things that they'd publicly put on their website about the cases, right?
2: Right. So. We started with the DOJ had a site a website on their on their homepage called the the China Initiative information about the China Initiative. Mm-hmm. They had linked to you know quite a few dozens of press releases. Right. Some right. of these press releases were about sentencing, some of them were about someone being arrested, some of them were about being indictments. Sometimes there were multiple press releases with the same person, sometimes there was just one press release about one person in a case that had multiple co-defendants being uh, sentenced. And from there, we sort of went through and pulled out, here's what each of these cases they're actually referring to, uh, mm-hmm. and then went to PACER, which is the online repository for federal court information, and then found the actual court documents and matched what they were saying in the court documents against what they were saying in the press releases, which sometimes did not really match as well as they as it seemed. And, but that was sort of the foundation for how we built the outline of the database was was going through those press releases, finding the people who were mentioned there, and then finding that those cases. We also then flushed that out by looking at cases that had been kind of widely reported and widely acknowledged as a, a China Initiative case, such as, as Gong Chen's case, that actually right. weren't on the site. Um, oh,
0: that one wasn't actually on the site. That's no, interesting. No, or
2: that had been removed. Uh-huh. And that's, that was the second level of where are the cases that they, we know they're missing.
0: Um, oh, right, 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 right.
2: We knew that, you know, some case it wasn't a necessarily a complete accounting because, as we said, Gong Chen's case was not there, and then there was a case of a Cleveland Clinic researcher named Xing Wang, um, I believe, who had been there at one point and then had been removed after they dropped the charges.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's it was one of the things that really jumped out in your report was the removal of of so many of these cases. We'll get to that in just a second. Let's talk first about um, both the strengths and the weaknesses of the data that you had access to what were the strengths of it and where where do you wish that you could have had maybe a more fulsome set and where do you think there there were things that were conspicuously missing
2: well i think that's uh, an interesting question i think the strength of it was that we were using the doj's own statements um and right. so you know it was it, it was hard for the, even mm-hmm. though later they may have said oh this isn't actually a china initiative case they had once called it a china initiative case and so they, it's right. hard for them to refute that and i like, think that was one of the biggest strengths of it and the weaknesses was that, you know, sometimes these cases are really sprawling, complicated cases and question of, you know, is this case against this one person, is that considered China Initiative? But there's a kind of a related case that's not mentioned. Do we consider that a China Initiative case? And so there were some questions we had to talk about. And then, you know, the the fact is that it was not, a we we knew it wasn't comprehensive. And so, you know, when we went to say, try to make some, you know, get insights from it, we had to really grapple with the fact that this was not a comprehensive database, that there there had been, you know, cases that had been left out, and that there may be cases that we didn't know about at the time that we had to account for that.
0: This this points to a problem not with you guys and your methodology, but with the way that these cases were defined or not defined in the first place. And, and that's one of the things that is right up top in your report, which I thought was just absolutely fascinating, is that the China Initiative, the Department of Justice, does not define what the China Initiative actually is. And when you've tried to pin them up, down on it, they haven't been able to, to really give you a, a good answer. Uh, I think that that seems to be, I mean, uh, you, can, you can hardly be faulted for, for that. I mean, if they are going to be so, so ambiguous about it. How do people at Justice conceptualize it? Or how do they talk about it? And why does it remain so undefined, Eileen? I-
1: That's a really great question. Um, and we got very different answers from you know, various folks that we spoke to. The answer that we seem to get as we were reporting this out is that it's really changed over time. You know, when the Department of Justice first launched this initiative in November 2018, they came out with an announcement by Jeff Sessions, they presented like 10 priority areas of the China initiative, it was economic espionage, it was foreign influence. It was um, the thing that was actually interesting about academic cases and research security was, it wasn't even necessarily that they were supposed to go after research security. It was that they were supposed to come up with a plan to go after it. You know, So when we're saying, what does the DOJ think about the China initiative? There's that initial priorities that they set out. And then there's um, how it's really shifted during the three years that it's it's been in place. And it's how how people are talking about it now are is quite different. I think because of both the the criticism um, that different parties have have brought forth, including us, uh, through this story, but also their own knowledge, perhaps, and awareness mm-hmm, of what mm-hmm. it is and is not doing, uh, and how it is and is not achieving the original goals, which was at its core supposed to be about American intellectual property and and protecting against national security threats.
0: Right. Jess, you guys note that only about a quarter of people and institutions that were charged under the China Initiative actually have been convicted, which is in very stark contrast to the percentage of convictions from 97 to 2016. I looked this up, which was 91% in the case of espionage uh, and just as high for federal white collar crime cases, which is about 90% according to this piece in the LA Times. What does this tell you? I mean, why the low uh, rate of conviction
2: This was something that we found actually very interesting um, when we started to look through the data was how how few cases actually had ended in conviction. And some of this is because some of these cases are are ongoing, but a big percentage of the ongoing cases are actually have never really um, proceeded. You know, they they get indicted, they get unsealed, and then they just never move on from that. And that's mostly because these defendants are not in the United States um, or are not somehow not uh, available. For, for prosecution. You need to um, in the American courtroom, you have to actually come in and be arraigned. Um you can't right. be tried in a, a absentia except in some, you know, very rare circumstances. Uh and so that was something that, you know, I mean there's there's discussion among experts about, you know, what what does it actually mean to indict someone who you really have very little expectation of prosecuting. Right. That this this was really ending in in in, in very few in very few convictions, even in cases where, you know even in, in, in some Pretty significant cases. I mean, you know, we had a. Uh, they talked about hacking and Chinese uh, state-sponsored hacking, which is probably one of the clearest examples of cases that that do fall under the under the DOJ'sa. Uh, um,
0: remit, yeah, remit, sure. yeah.
2: I mean, you know, no one is saying that the DOJ should not be looking at the people who are behind the Equifax data breach, for example, which is one of the cases. Right. But th- they're not that these are it's very unlikely that they'll ever be prosecuted. They'll obviously the inside of an American courtroom. Right, right. The other
1: thing that I want to add there though is um, you know, we we spoke to Andrew Lelling uh, who was the former prosecutor in in the district of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um and we spoke to him after our first story published and he his overall view is still that the research integrity cases are successful for the government which is really interesting, right? Um so he so again this kind of goes to like the different sides that disagree about whether or not these cases are successful. We're we're kind of talking in in different terms. And so for him, he's saying that these are still still successful even if they don't win in trial. But when someone pleads guilty, which is happening a lot in research integrity cases, so academics that maybe were first being investigated for uh passing information along to the chinese government or chinese entities or however it's being defined um end up you know pleading guilty to tax fraud or right. to false statements like for him that is still a win so i, I think that's that's something worth mentioning i'll say you know there
2: is there are quite you know quite a few professors who have pleaded guilty um but i think the you know majority of these cases are not the majority, but a big, good chunk of the most high-profile cases are still pending, and so we'll see what will happen. Um, Charles Lieber, the Harvard professor, who's probably one of the most high-profile cases, is set to go to trial this week.
0: Um, this week, yeah, yeah, we'll all be watching that. I mean, so just just to back up a little bit, you know, your you're one of these. Are, this is one of the big findings of your report is that the DOJ has is is really markedly shifted its emphasis. I think it's fair to say that it's watered it down from a focus initially on these commercial espionage cases to these research integrity cases, to failure to disclose sources of funding, uh, allegations of double-dipping, affiliation with 1,000 Talents or other Chinese state-led initiatives uh, for uh, recruiting talent, that sort of thing. I mean, I've heard enough people trying to defend the China initiative who, who always ask that. What, what's wrong with the DOJ going after these research integrity issues? I mean, I, I feel personally like that's kind of using a sledgehammer to go after a fly. I mean, it's kind of... Uh, these aren't these are maybe things that are better handled at the university administration level uh but hey who do i know so what what's what does the d o j say to that i mean when you when as you doubtless have brought that 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 idea up with them
1: yeah i, I want to say that i i was going to say they say a lot of different things, but i think ultimately what it comes down to in the various things that they've told me they they are it's really it seems to be about this issue of non-traditional collectors, um, right. this term that they use, and and they define that in the China Initiative. You know, the launch documents and and statements and all of that. It's one of the few things they do define, and they define it as researchers, academics, contractors working for d- defense contractors, academic institutions, etc., that are potentially being weaponized by the Chinese state to bring over small pieces of information that. On its own may not be significant, but you know when you add it all together, is giving the Chinese state, uh, the PRC, some kind of uh, advantage or inside knowledge that that is putting the American economy uh, and innovation uh, at harm.
0: Right, right, right. We talked about the the number of cases that had actually ended in in a conviction, but I'm 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 wondering if you have a statistical like this, and I I don't know that you would, but. I'm curious, what is the percentage of those who were investigated who ended up being charged? And the problem seems to be that we just don't know how many investigations were opened. I mean, at one point, they were boasting about opening a new investigation every 10 hours. I think that was in the summer of 2020 that they were saying that. But is anybody, I mean, you've talked to people at organizations like AAAJ, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, or Jeremy Wu at APA Justice. Do they collect these statistics is anyone putting together a comprehensive list of the institutions and individuals about whom the DOJ has opened investigations I mean I can say with confidence that the ones we know about uh, that have just moved far up you know along enough to be placed on any kind of you know a website or any anything publicly those are just the tip of the iceberg there are just lots and lots that have, uh, have been investigated and that can ruin lives just just the investigation So what do we know about
2: that? It's it's really, really hard to know how many investigations are open. A lot of times these never become public. Um, We do have some, you know, inclinations that there are far more cases that have been investigated than have led to criminal charges. Um, The National Institutes of Health has said that they've, um, you know, they've reached out to institutions regarding 226 scientists as of October.
0: And that's just NIH funding. That's just
2: scientists. NIH. Um, right. So you know, obviously, the NIH is one of the the biggest grant funding organizations in the country. But the National Science Foundation is also doing these um, these cases too.
0: Right. right. And it's and, not all life sciences, after all, right? It's, right. So so in. we
2: do, and, and you know, and who knows? You know, really, it, it is hard to 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 know how many cases are being open or how many scientists are being you know uh, looked at as someone of potential concern.
0: Right, right. What do you guys know about the, the deletions? Um, I mean, this is, this is, I think, one of the really interesting things that, you know, the fact that your request for comment seems to have, I'm not, not sure we can say with confidence that it has, but seems to have prompted them to delete a bunch of allegations from the China Initiative's website. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how many seem to have vanished and, and what your, your sense is for why they might have been deleted?
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's there's what the Department of Justice has told us, which is that you know this is just um, standard practice that they do remove and update cases
0: whenever a journalist asks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when whenever uh, it makes sense to remove a case from their website is what they said. Okay. But you know when we actually looked at the before and the after, and we have a video in, in one of our stories that that highlights just how much was removed. What we found was that it was 17 cases that totaled 39 defendants that they had removed from its website, and then two cases with five new defendants. But it, it wasn't just this that was uh, added or removed. They also updated the cases with sentencing and trial information, which, which is great, but not something that they were doing beforehand. And I think we can say with yeah we're we're fairly confident in saying that they did make these removals and uh, updates and all of that um, in response to our questions, both the official uh, questions that we sent over to the DOJ spokesperson um as well as conversations that we had with some unnamed individuals that were formerly at the Justice Department. I actually had a call with one former senior executive at DOJ in which we went over one of the cases you know, on the phone. We were very perplexed that there was a man that had been convicted of financing a turtle smuggling ring um, from New York to Hong Kong. And obviously, endangered animal smuggling is bad. <laughs> no question right. about that, right? But if we go back to the to the goals and the priorities that the Justice Department set out when they started this program, like
0: that's not on the list. <laughs>
1: that does not fit into intellectual property or foreign influence or any of these things. And so we had a conversation where this senior official, you know, read through uh, the case, the the press release that was on the site with me on the phone, and was trying to figure out why it was that this was on there. And he said it was a mistake and said that he was going to email someone at. The Justice Department um, and was sending that email as we were on the phone so I, I f- and this was about a week before we sent the official um, request for comment.
0: Should put that uh, in the story? That's great.
1: <laughs> I do want to add too that you know some of the cases that were
2: removed weren't just turtle smuggling cases. you know one of the cases they removed was as you, you mentioned before on Ming Hu um oh wow, so you know and they because they said, "Oh well, I guess it's not in our interest of justice anymore to keep publicizing his case. That was a very public case. He has been widely reported as being part of the China Initiative. Yeah. So you know you can say that they are taking it, and they didn't remove the press releases from the internet. They just removed it from the China Initiative website, and on in the press release it still says, you know, he's as of December second that he's this case is part of the China Initiative. So I think there's you know that's that's something that is worth pointing out that some of the, the cases they removed are cases that did not work out well for them.
0: Yeah. Let, let's talk about Enminghu. Um, There was so much egg on the FBI's face after that blew up so spectacularly. What has been the, besides removing his, his case from their website, what has been the DOJ's reaction to this? I mean, do you sense that just as it was an inflection point in popular attitudes toward the China Initiative, that it was also maybe a point where, you know, they got demoralized at, at justice? Is, is there, is, are they embarrassed? Are they Are they feeling like, okay, maybe we can slowly wind this down now that
1: there's certainly a lot of people that have been watching these cases, um including congressmen um and congresswomen that that some of whom we've spoken to that really hope that the Anmin Who case will be that inflection point. And mm-hmm. I think it's just it's too early to tell um whether whether or not it is. You know, there's there's other people that we've spoken to that Believe that perhaps Charles Lieber, um, that case will be much more of a of a bellwether of what will come after this. So it's it's unclear. And, and the other thing that I want to add is, having spoken to Department of Justice officials, is and this goes back to, to what I was saying earlier about how the the narrative has shifted so much around the China initiative. One of the things that's really interesting to me and, and problematic is there's so many ways to deny culpability and responsibility, you know? So the FBI agent in that case did a horrible job, you know, as it came yeah. out in the, in the, in the trial, um, false statements, you know, false just lies on many occasions. Right. Yeah. But,
0: Coercion and yeah. Lots right. Of
1: stuff, but, but, but so one of the arguments that I've heard um, from DOJ officials is that this is, not an issue of the China initiative. This is the issue of the sole FBI the agent. The one
0: bad apple or whatever. Yeah.
1: That yeah. W- those were the exact words that were used with me in a conversation. Ah. So and, and the other thing that I think is worth pointing out is um we talk about the FBI and the DOJ interchangeably, uh, and and they're not, right? right. Like uh FBI is a law enforcement um and information, like intelligence agency, DOJ is, you know, Department of Justice um, and and they're very linked, but I, I do think this is important because when you go to what the FBI, uh, what their website has on on you know China, they're not talking about the China initiative. They're talking about the China threat and that is the right. language that is plastered on their website. And um, we got comment from them as well, you know, we asked everyone, what is the China initiative? What is your guidance? How are you working with DOJ? And and so I think that's important as we're talking about this kind of plausible deniability.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's scary because you know Christopher Ray, of course, infamously talked about how China represents a whole of society threat that needs to be met with a whole of society response. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. at least hey, you know, they're not doing these press events where they're boasting about you know opening a new uh, investigation every X number of hours. But uh, I'm I'm curious who in the administration right now. I don't. I'm not seeing anyone outside of Justice coming out and defending this thing anymore. There's nobody else in the administration.
2: Something that you know is, is worth pointing out um, is that we're in a you know this past year has been a transition period for our government. Uh, we have a new administration. The uh, Assistant Attorney General for National Security, who sort of at the center of a lot of these cases, John Demers, left um, under some scandal uh, last. June or July? Yeah,
0: June it was. Um,
2: June. And the new the, his replacement was only just confirmed a few weeks ago. Um, right. The U.S. attorneys it, who are uh, doing these cases in the in the field are are still being confirmed. I mean, the one from Massachusetts just got confirmed last week after a, a very controversial process.
0: Yeah, uh, you're following that pretty closely. Um, he, yeah, that's Rachel Rollins, right? It is
2: um, right. and right. she was. We can talk about more about her later, but it's a very interesting <laughs> confirmation process. Um, yeah. But so you know, one thing is. It's unclear. I think we've we've been. It's unclear exactly how much they are going to defend it, or how much they are going to come out and say, you know, we're we, we're willing to to roll this in, you know, roll ourselves into this. But so we'll, we'll see what, what 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 they have to say, kind of going forward. But it is.
0: Have you gotten any sense for what Merrick Garland is feeling about this? I mean, are there any discernible changes at all? I mean, what's the fate of this thing under Garland?
1: I mean, I I think the biggest difference, and and this is important because words matter, rhetoric matters, is that there is a change in in how this administration talks about the threat. I think they're very aware of anti Asian hate, and yeah. um, and and so I think they're more aware of that. Merrick Garland has said in multiple you know hearings that this is based on conduct that this isn't about racial profiling he he's talked about bringing back implicit bias training which was paused under the Trump administration so that
0: they instituted a new program under Trump of bias reinforcement it was pretty successful apparently
1: right um but but those things take time and uh so so it's it's really it's unclear and and i think the other thing is you know as everyone's talking about what's next for the china initiative and there are uh, a lot of civil rights groups and and academics and associations of academics and all of that that are calling for the end to the China Initiative. But is it going to be the end of a PR, you know, bad PR essentially? And is it going to be the continuation of this this focus on on the China threat, as the FBI puts it, under some other name? Um, that's that's very much still an open question, right? The you know, you could say, what does it actually
2: mean to end the China initiative? The, if you you can come out with a big announcement saying we've ended the China initiative, but then continue to be prosecuting these academics for, you know, these non-disclosure issues and continuing to be looking at all these other cases, what does that mean that the China initiative has, has ended? Um, and, you right. know, but the Biden administration has has not said what their plan is on research security. It's something they're going to come up with, you know, in the near future. Um, and they they have, like Eileen said, words matter, and they they've said very clearly that they they do not want this to be an excuse for anti agent bias, and that, they, that that's not what this should be about. Um, but we still don't know what the the details will be.
0: Right. They can say it all they want, but I I think that just even changing the name of it, not calling it the China Initiative, not having it be country specific, that would actually probably do a lot to. I mean, look, it it really colors the way that a lot of people think about it. I mean, when you know that there is one specific, only one country-specific program, and that it's about China, uh, that it really reinforces a lot of these ideas. I'm, I'm curious, how have they responded? The people you talked to, to Andrew Lelling and others, on and off the record, how they responded to this open letter campaign? So many prominent scientists and researchers have now come out. So many university administrators have written you know v- very forcefully about this is it is it doing anything to them
1: yeah that's a that's a good question um i mean andrew lelling has has spoken both to us and and previously to other reporters um he's been quite public about how he thinks that the china initiative did have a chilling effect and when he was still district um district attorney he spoke of that as, as kind of a good thing in that, you know, <laughs> we are- um, The good
0: chilling effect. <laughs>
1: right. And and now he believes that it's gone a little bit too far. And he told us that, you know, the message has been sent. Um, if the point was to have scientists be like 150% clear on what their- uh, What their affiliations are, you know, what they're disclosing—that they have to disclose absolutely everything, everywhere—that that that message has been sent, and that another twenty-three academics don't need to be prosecuted.
0: That was not the original message, though, right? I mean, come (laughs) on—we know that that wasn't. It was supposed to be about industrial espionage. It was supposed to be about, you know, influence operations and all these things. And now it's—it's about, uh, you know, non-reporting of of sources of funding. I mean, which is, you know, I mean, yeah, of course we should not have that, but. Christ. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really. I'd love to hear. I, I'm sure there's so much stuff that you can't tell me right now that they, you were told in confidence and didn't make it into the story. But hey, another time. When um, what is the evidence though for ethnic profiling in the China Initiative? So you guys looked at a lot of data. If you had to sort of, show, aha, here, this, this is a strong piece of evidence that su- suggests that indeed there was racial or ethnic profiling. For example, I think you, you you put out a number. I mean, it's a very high number of the, the percentage of people of ethnic Chinese background.
2: Something I think to make sure that we're clear about it is that it's it's very hard to prove racial profiling with numbers because it's about intent. And, you know, but what you, what you can show is this is, there's no question that this was a disproportionately impacting people of Chinese descent, that they were the most of the people who were caught up in this were of Chinese descent. Um, I think the number
1: was at- 130, 130 of 148 individuals. That's Uh, 90%. Nearly 90%. Specifically, like if we want to get exact, it's 88%, but nearly 90% is pretty problematic.
0: I'd say. But of course, you know, people are going to point to Charles Lieber and they're going to say- this is like, you know, the one white guy who got shot by a cop that proves that the cops aren't targeting, you know, black men, right? this It's just, that's what's going to happen. It's really unfortunate. <laughs> Christ. Yeah, so yeah, that that's that's a pretty goddamn strong piece of evidence. You know, I mean, something that we've talked about a little bit, Eileen, even, even were it not for the explicitly named China Initiative, this singling out of people with a China nexus it's something that's been going on for a long time, and we're all familiar with the Ho Lee case, you know, the Los Alamos uh, scientist who was done on espionage charges, and that they were later pled down to, you know, something like improper handling of data, uh, which amounted, I mean, I think, to a, a near total exoneration, but only after completely ruining the guy's life. So it seems likely that, you know, as Jess was saying, that even if they shut this thing down, this is going to continue. Um, when when you talk to these these sources who are working on anti-AAPI hate and who are working on combating the China Initiative, people like AAJ and the Committee of One Hundred, what have they said about that problem, about that persistent problem of anti-Asian and specifically anti-Chinese bias?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll get to that in one moment. I think it is important to note though that that nexus to China that is another one of these undefined terms. Uh, yeah. It is not legally defined, and it is not, uh, at least according to the sources that I spoke to, there is no definition of nexus to China. So that is incredibly wow. problematic. Um, and you know, as as a lot of these groups have have spoken about, it ends up meaning anyone that has family in China, maybe has you know property or economic interests, just by that have nothing to do with their work. Um, people that go to China, all, all of these issues are, are are or could be at some point um targeted. And and yeah. that's really quite frightening. I, I think a lot of the civil rights groups that especially focus on Asian American issues, they they look at the Win Ho Lee case, but they also look back to how Asian Americans have been targeted in the past let's not even call it internment, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II is is part of this same trend that they see of, you know, being the perpetual foreigner. And, and then right. moving in the other direction historically, moving forward, um I think there is this really legitimate uh fear that racial profiling is something that this country is going to be grappling with for a long time. And it's it's not going to end with the China Initiative. The China Initiative is a really prominent uh, potential case of it. Um, again, mm-hmm. like it's hard to say because of intent, and but that's a, the legal definition. Um, but the ways that it's affecting, you know, communities uh, is is very real and very scary, and and is going to likely going to continue on, unless there are more like structural changes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of structural changes, Jess, as I mentioned, you've been following the confirmation hearings of Rachel Rollins, uh, who has now finally been confirmed as district attorney for Massachusetts. It was touch and go there, right? It required, yeah, absolutely. To I mean, thing.
2: so it was a it ended up being a fifty fifty vote in the Senate to confirm her, and Kamala Harris had to come down from the White House to break the tie. Uh, and wow. just to give you an idea of how unusual that is for a U.S. attorney, the last time they even had to do a roll call vote for a U.S. attorney, was 1975.
0: Wow. Was was the China Initiative a factor in it, though? I mean, was her vocal opposition to it at all a factor in, the, in that hearing? Not
2: that I've seen. I mean, so the reason why Rachel Rollins kind of became, you know, like a, a, so opposed by Republicans, and it was the Republicans who were opposing her, um, is that she has a reputation for uh, what's called being a progressive prosecutor. She's a, a woman of color herself. Um, she is was until she was confirmed the Suffolk County DA. So she was the district attorney for Boston, basically. Right. Um, and she had a policy of what she called non-prosecution for low-level crimes. So she mm-hmm. would say, for example, drug possession. Among, she said, I don't think it's worth prosecuting people who are, you know, suffering from drug addiction and crimes that stem from that. Um, you know, and she had, for example, she also did um, a disorderly caught conduct, uh, trespassing, shoplifting, you know, being a minor in possession of alcohol, a standalone charge of resisting arrest. These are all crimes that she said are automatic decision is not, is that we're not going to prosecute them. Um, I think something people maybe who don't follow the justice system that closely re- don't realize is that it's a prosecutor's decision whether or not to prosecute a case. A prosecutor can have as much evidence as they want and they can say, no, I don't, we don't, for whatever reason, we don't want to prosecute this or we do. Um, and so that, uh, gave her the reputation of being soft on crime, um, even though she you know, has quite a few other people who would say the opposite. And she is someone who cares about racial justice. Uh, that's something that she has made, she has said many times that she wants this the, the justice system to become more racially fair. And so while the China Initiative itself didn't come, necessarily come up in her confirmation hearings that I've seen, um, it is also that true that two of the most high-profile academic cases, Charles Lieber and Gong Chen, are Massachusetts district that's cases. That's
0: right. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, I hear there are a lot of universities in, in, <laughs> in the state of Massachusetts.
2: We have one or two.
0: Yeah, I have heard, yeah. That's that's fascinating. So, I mean, I, I maybe the la- last question here. This is obviously beyond the scope of your actual reporting, but I'm really curious. Do you think that President Biden right now is facing kind of a a dilemma here, where he's caught between, on the one hand, the anger of AAPI activists who are understandably really pissed off over this surge of you know anti-APi hate that many you know rightly, and I certainly do attribute in part to this vilification of Chinese ness, to xenophobia, to and then you know in in the China Initiative itself, what what Maggie Lewis has, has called the criminalization of Chineseness. So that that on the one hand, and on the other, you know the potential attacks on his right flank for being soft on China just you know just like 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 Rachel Rollins right uh it, it reminds me a lot of the, the dilemma that I I feel like President Biden must must be facing right now do you have some thoughts on that
1: uh it's it's always hard to um you're always going to get a little bit of silence when you ask reporters to speculate on things they haven't reported on um but we have had i I've have had sources that have spoken to this difficulty certainly uh it's it's I mean, we would I, I think the Biden administration more than perhaps Biden himself are aware of and concerned about the um the concerns that uh activists have brought up. I don't know that Biden himself has ever actually spoken about the China Initiative. Um mm, right. but, uh, but
0: he did go to Atlanta right after, you know, uh
1: Right, absolutely, no, right and it. and those gestures to the Asian American community are certainly they're they're important. They they mean a lot. I think something that I do feel comfortable saying is that you know Biden does want to
2: is trying to be the anti-Trump in a lot of ways, um, right. and Trump was famously not shy about leaning into some ugly Asian uh, stereotypes and ugly Asian uh, rhetoric.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And so I think that is something that Biden will at least publicly want us to separate himself from. But you know how that plays into his actual policy towards China and the concerns that they, you know they might have about you know some legitimate economic espionage and and a- actions by the state is is really hard to say.
1: I, I just I was just going to add to the other side of that the administration has not been soft on China, and I don't think we're in a place um, we're in a moment where. He can be soft on China, and and so I think that other aspect of what you asked about is is certainly um, a concern.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, really disappointing, but it's it's absolutely the case. Um, you know, I mean, I think it it bears. I mean, you've, you've you've flicked at this many times, but there is actual espionage. Yeah, absolutely, there is. I mean, and I I think there there have been some publications out there that I think have done an excellent job of of really kind of riding the line of making it. Uh, very clear that this stuff does happen. Uh, one book, I mean, I know that we've had her on the show before, but um, Mara Fistendahl's book, The Scientist and the Spy, does an outstanding job of this. It it really sort of looks at the, the facts in the case, but it also talks about FBI overreach and and racial profiling. Uh, so if you haven't read that, uh, that's something I would recommend. Speaking of recommendations, let's get to those recommendations. in a bit. But first, I mean, thank you so much to both of you And, uh, of course, to Karen, too, who unfortunately couldn't join us. But congrats on this really important work. And I hope that uh, we'll put, obviously, links to it. Um, I know, well, you know, you get only a couple of MIT technology review pieces for free every month. But um, use them wisely. Use them on this piece. Uh, There's actually two pieces of it. Uh, There's the main story. And then there's another addendum that has disclosures, you know, the transparency statement, and a little more on the methodology. But, you know, just read the main piece, at least. Uh, it's, It's fantastic work. So congrats to both of you and to Karen.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Well, I'm not letting you off the hook yet. We got to move on to recommendations. And before we do that, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work that we're doing here at Seneca, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to the SubChina Access newsletter, which brings you the most important news out of China every day. While you are at it, check out our business-focused SubChina AM, which is daily and free. Uh, And our weekly roundup of society and culture news, Subchina Vibe, which is also free. It's written by Zhao Yunfeng, who's our fantastic society and culture writer. All right, on to recommendations. Eileen, why don't you kick us off? What you got for us?
1: The book that I recommend is called America for Beginners. It's about Mm -hmm. an Indian mother that journeys to the United States in search of her estranged and possibly deceased son. Um, It's a road trip novel. It's about Unlikely characters that would not have met otherwise, and are meeting, and as a result of that, um, learn some things about themselves and about America. It's really beautifully written, very easy to read, um, and has just a lot of surprising elements.
0: That sounds great. That sounds really, really good. I, I think I'm gonna see if it's on audiobook. I'm, I've got some travel coming up uh, for the holidays, and it sounds like a perfect airplane uh, audiobook. What's what's the name of the author? Do you remember?
1: Leah Frankie, and I I picked it up uh, at the airport, so uh, I, I uh-huh. think you're right about <laughs> what it is good for.
0: Well, oh, good, good, good. All right, Jess, what you got?
2: So I want to recommend uh, one of my favorite shows. Just came back with the first episode of their sixth season this week. Called it's called The Expanse.
0: Ooh, I love The Expanse.
2: <laughs> for someone who's not familiar, it's a show that's set a few hundred years in the future when humanity has colonized uh, the solar system and. Humanity has sort of divided into the people from Earth, people from Mars, and the people who live out in the the belt who are physiologically different and um, don't necessarily have the same rights as people from the planets. And you know, there's a I don't want to spoil too much because it really <laughs> it kind of goes in some unexpected directions, but it's a it's a really interesting show about what a future might look like if we start to exploit the you know the resources out in space the way that you know kind of looks like we might be heading
0: yeah i cannot recommend it more highly i i absolutely love that show
2: and there's a lot of fun space adventure in it too
0: yeah i mean it's just this this sixth season has only put out one episode so far but it the production value in it is noticeably better i mean the cgi just keeps getting better to the point where it's it's like it's it's the background right i mean the it it just they do zero gravity and everything like that just so perfectly now that it just no longer draws your attention it's so good which is sort of like it it's so good that it's invisible uh which i absolutely love about it but everything about this this one i mean i think i feel like just it has a more filmic quality this season so far uh the acting is is better it's just great i think marco andaros is one of the best Antagonists or villains or whatever that they've ever devised. I mean, he's just he's he's so charismatic and he has has a kind of right on his side.
2: It's so terrifying and how where that leads him. I don't want to spoil anything because if you
0: yeah if you haven't yeah. watched it's it, it's terrifying. It's terrifying where it leads him, but at the same time, you can kind of yeah understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Which is wonderful. It has that 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 moral ambiguity in it, which is is just great. Yeah, I can't I can't tell you how much I love that show. And yeah, I didn't love it the first couple of seasons. I didn't love it. I mean, it got really great starting in season three. Well, it
2: was it was interesting because it was on Sci Fi, the Sci Fi Channel, the first two seasons right, or first right, three right, seasons, right. and kind of had some weird timing pacing issues. And then it went uh, in the fourth season. Amazon uh, kind of took it over, and yeah,
0: that's what it was. The fourth season. I heard it that it's really also good. it's
2: Jeff Bezos's favorite show, so no wonder it gets. <laughs> resources Aha. although I'm not okay. sure he's taking the, the right messages from it but
0: no he doesn't seem to be <laughs> I think he would be out there exploiting belters I mean he, he's just, yeah. anyway that's that's great uh, great recommendation yeah thank you so much uh, it's it's always good to meet another person who loves that show <laughs> I, I, I I call my brother and we talk about it for an hour after every every uh, episode that airs
2: and the final book and it's based on a book series and the final book also just came out which I have not read yet I'm waiting for like a good chunk of like, you know, a couple of days where I have nothing to do so I can just sit down and dive into the the finale of that of the book series.
0: Oh, cool. Cool. I haven't read the books yet. I think I am going to at some point though. It'll be fun. It's like co-written by a couple of, couple of people, right?
2: Yeah. Those yeah, yeah. two guys yeah. who who write under a, a single pen name.
0: All right. Uh, so my recommendation for this week is the, the novel that I'm reading right now, which is called Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, uh, who wrote the wonderful prize-winning book. I can't remember if it won the National Book Award, or the, I think it was the National Book Award, All the Light We Cannot See, uh, which I don't know if other of you guys read that? I uh, have. It's just great. Yeah, it was Yeah, it was All excellent. the Light We Cannot See, I- exquisite, yeah. So um, this one is definitely more challenging. Uh, it's set in multiple times and, and places like in 15th century Constantinople and like out into the future and, you know, sort of in the present. Uh, Dora's writing, though, is just lovely and it's just, it's delicious. I'm really enjoying it. My daughter is also about to read it, uh, which I'm pretty excited about because we had actually both read All the Light You Cannot See, uh, at roughly the same time. So it was a total kind of parenting achievement unlocked for me to be able to like talk about a novel, like a serious novel with her. Uh, now she's, she's reading 1984 in school right now and, and constantly talking to me about that, uh, and, you know, trying to understand why it's not banned in China. <laughs> Uh, it's not. It's it's weird. I I I'd assumed it was banned in China. It's not. It's it's That's like available for sale in China. So thanks once again. I mean it was just so great that you guys could take the to- time to join me to talk about this really important piece, um, set of pieces that you guys did. Uh once again, this is uh in MIT technology review. Make sure to to check it out and uh you know, hit me up with your your comments and your, your questions about it. Uh we'll have you guys back on again soon, I hope, and keep up the great work. Thank
2: you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having All right.
0: us. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We'd be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, or you can follow Seneca at at Podcast. Make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.